views and opinions expressed by hosts, invited speakers, and callers do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Black Talk Media Project or the Black Talk Radio Network. You know, we do whatever we do to survive. Drop it! Good evening and welcome to Political Prisoner Radio right here on the Black Talk Radio Network. Today's date is December the 6th, 2015. want to welcome in those on the network who were just listening to Time for Awakening, which is running over uh, their time, so apologies. So we had to cut that off and uh, so we were already running late with Political Prisoner Radio. Uh, Also, just to remind you, the Lotus Place radio program will not be on air tonight as the host of that program is traveling and was not able to uh, do her program. Uh, But um, I do have on the line with me running shotgun, uh, Sister Amija Whitlock, the co-producer and co-host of Political Prisoner Radio. Greetings to you tonight, sis. Oh, I'm, give me just a second. Uh, Sister Mijo, are you there? Okay, it appears that we lost Sister uh, Mijo. Let me try to add her back on. Uh, apologies for that. I don't know what happened there. I thought we had her uh, connected to the program. Uh, lots to talk about tonight. Uh, uh, Sister Mija, we got you on the line. Yeah, I'm here. Okay. Well, um, greetings to you, and uh, how are things with you tonight? Greetings, greetings. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's a lot of stuff happening, you know, all around the country. Uh, you know, a lot of things happening regarding you know, fight in the community, fighting against uh, police terrorism and genocide. Most certainly there's a lot going on um, globally around the world. And unfortunately, you know, well, that's why we have a network and we try to talk about these things on the various uh, programs. And um, I, I hope people are just paying attention. Um, but let me go ahead and let the people know what we'll be uh, discussing during the next hour. Uh, tonight, uh, we are going to talk about the latest news concerning a previous report we discussed on this program about the reestablishment of the overthrown kingdom of Hawaii, uh, which was cleared by the Obama administration to hold a vote to determine if they would get their country back. Again, it was illegally overthrown by some uh, white supremacist businessmen with help from the U.S. Marines. Now, uh, news comes that that process has been blocked by the U.S. Supreme Court, and that is why we are seeing every non-assimilated Native Hawaiian is a political prisoner and prisoner of war. Uh, We also want to share some of the latest political prisoner events coming up uh, that we, of course, have posted to our Facebook page, Political Prisoner Radio. Also got two political prisoner birthdays this week. We'll just share some brief um, information about their uh, different cases. Stanley L. Cohen, uh, actually it's his birthday tonight, so happy birthday to, I shouldn't say happy birthday because he's not in a happy place, but uh, birthday greetings to Mr. Cohen. Um, December the 6th, and uh, Zolo Agano Azani, Azania, I think is how you pronounce uh, the brother's name, former political, I mean, excuse me, a Black Panther um, who is a political prisoner. He His birthday is coming up Saturday, December the 12th. Um, tonight, we have an unusually long political prisoner radio mix, uh, which, of course, we make from the clips that are provided by Prison Radio. Make sure you visit prisonradio.org and support their work. You can make donations. Um, tonight's voices will include, of course, as always, Mumia Abu Jamal, Arsa Imhotep Amen, and uh, Kenneth Hartman will be featured tonight in our political 
Prisoner Radio Mix. Again, uh, much thanks to the work of Prisoner Radio. We are able to bring you the voices from behind the wall. So let's go ahead and get started. Uh, sis, so what, what are your thoughts on the U.S. Supreme Court uh, voting 5-4 to four to block the counting of the votes um, that the Hawaiians had to determine whether or not they would reestablish their overthrown kingdom, which was known as the Kingdom of Hawaii. I mean, it's just, it's absolutely, you know, ridiculous and, and absurd that the U.S. Supreme Court would even have the authority to do such. I I agree wholeheartedly. Uh, I actually wrote about that on our website, proxyracism.com, which is maintained by the Black Talk Media Project. Uh, when we first discussed it on Political Prisoner Radio, um, you what you have is some some assimilated Hawaiians uh, who live in Texas. I know at least one of the plaintiffs in this lawsuit who uh, sued to block the vote uh, lives in Texas, doesn't even live in Hawaii anymore. And um, so a lot of um, white people uh, also are against this, and they've been using these these assimilated Hawaiians to uh, block this vote, uh, which would reestablish again the kingdom of Hawaii, which was illegally overthrown by white supremacists, led by Sanford Ballard Dole, that's uh, of the Dole Food Corporation. Uh, also, a uh, one of the descendants of this man is, is the former Republican candidate for president and former senator, Bob Dole. Um, and as I stated, this is the same family uh, that, that uh, started the Dole Food Corporation. And um, the overthrow of the Kingdom of Hawaii uh, began with the coup d'etat. On January 17, 1893, on the island of Oahu, and um, it led to the end of their indigenous hereditary uh, monarch. Um, so, yeah, this is this is just pretty sad uh, from the aspect that you know you will have a proxy Hawaii who doesn't even live there anymore, who would then file this lawsuit, and this lawsuit is being held by the right wing group. A legal group or organization called Judicial Watch. Um, so, uh, yeah, people can read that report if they have not already. I have a link to it. So, you have any more thoughts on this, sis? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that the fact that, you know, you have people that would literally, you know, stop an action that would, you know, allow for I guess, some type of, you know, sovereignty and it just it's it's frustrating that um, you know, people would continue to allow, you know, the U.S. to invade and to colonize the land. I know there was also some decision made regarding the the mountaintop, uh, um, the the mountain the mountaintop um, observatory as well. Did, did you see information regarding that? Yes, yes. I, I, ha I have been seeing that on social media uh, to block the uh, uh, building of this, this observatory, uh, this, you know, one of them big large telescopes or, or something like that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's a lot going on in the Kingdom of Hawaii, and as I may have stated before, uh, my ex-wife, uh, the mother of two, two of my children is, is uh, native Hawaiian, and so, you know, my, my, uh, my children also have a stake in this as well uh, through, you know, their mother. And uh, so it's a lot going on, uh, as I stated, you know, when I was in a more confused state. 
um, and joined the United States military. I was stationed there for three years. And, you know, my eyes got open to a lot of things uh, while I was there, you know. And um, they actually have had, you know, resistance movement going on since they were overthrown. But uh, um, I don't know if I told this story before, but I actually was kidnapped. Um, by uh, members of that resistance movement, um, I had went out with a with a young lady and one of her cousins, and I had gotten drunk, you know, uh, doing being stupid, uh, getting drunk, and uh, she was driving, and so she drove because I was drunk, and uh, one and her family members were part of this this uh resistance movement, and then the next thing I know, you know, I wake up in the morning, I'm in the back seat of a car. The other car being driven around by, you know, these dudes that I don't even know, you know, I never seen before. And they took me to um, some kind of meeting that they had. It was on the beach. And, um, you know, and I just listened. I just listened to what they had to say and, and whatnot. And then they eventually let me go. And that was an eye-opening um, experience uh, for me because up until that point, I thought everything was all good. I, You know, at that point, I didn't even know that um you know hawaii had been illegally uh overthrown i knew it had been colonized but i didn't know the details and the particulars and that was an eye-opening um experience uh for me so um any other thoughts or should we move on yeah i mean i think that you know it's it's interesting through you know, out the history of, you know, ongoing, you know, occupation that even, you know, uh, prisoners or folks that have, you know, fought back. Of course, this kind of history, you know, is not, you know, taught in the school system. We don't hear, you know, about, you know, such resistance taking place. You know, it's just what you hear about Hawaii. Oh, you know, well, it's a beautiful place. Mm -hmm. Everybody wants to, you know, you hear about the tourism industry. You don't hear anything, you know, beyond that. Oh, oh and tomorrow was, was tomorrow, December the 7th, right? Pearl Harbor. You'll be hearing a lot on TV if you haven't already, you know, about the anniversary of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor and, and so but like you said you will learn that history but you won't learn the history about how their queen was kidnapped and uh, under the threat of being murdered along with members of her court uh, of her uh, royal court um, was forced to sign paperwork um, turning the, the the islands over uh, to this to these racist white supremacists and um, you know and, and her her um, Thinking at the time was, okay, I'll say these people lie, I'll say my own life, and then later, you know, contest this, which they did, which they did. And then at points, uh, um, several times throughout history, I think the last time was in the 1990s, the United States government through uh, um, con congressional resolutions have, have acknowledged that Hawaii was illegally overthrown. And so, you know, not that I'm a fan of the CEO of the uh, USA Inc. talking about President Obama. Um, you know, I, I will say, you know, that that uh, was a big move on on the uh, I think it's the Department of Interior uh, that handles like, you know, indigenous affairs and things of that nature. And they are the ones that went ahead and cleared, you know, the Native Hawaiians to go ahead and vote on whether or not they want to continue to be um, a, a state within the United States or if they wanted to uh, elect their own independent government reestablishing the kingdom of Hawaii. So, um, you know, a lot of people don't know these things. And, you know, I didn't know them at one point. But, I mean, if you really learn the true history, I mean, you'll just, your eyes will just be opened up to the um, the crimes that uh, this country has committed against people everywhere all over the planet. Right, exactly. I mean, we've talked about um, Oscar Lopez Rivera and, uh, you know, Puerto Rican political prisoners and the colonization, you know, of, of Puerto Rico. And, um, you know, it goes back to, you know, in that scenario with 
you know, Guam, Philippines, Puerto Rico. Birds and, and islands. Uh, the Spanish-American War. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the U.S. has, you know, lots of colonies and territories that, you know, we've never, we never really, you know, discussed. Mm-hmm. You know, those things, you know, are not, they're not, they're just not taught. And what it means when, you know, people are subjects, you know, are considered subjects to, you know, the United States. Mm-hmm. There's, uh, I know there's American Samoa and right. a whole lot of like small islands, islands. Mm-hmm. like towards the Pacific and other places that, you know, you never, people never think of, they never hear of, and they never understand, you know, what the U.S. is, is doing in, um, you know, to various people and, um, you know, it's it's horrible that, you know, we in what would be considered the mainland allow these occupations to, you know, occur without saying anything at all. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, there, of course, there are people like yourself and others, conscious people who do raise these issues, but we're in the minority. And I just have to say, you know, in defense of the masses, they don't know. Like Malcolm X say, you know, you don't know what you don't know until you know it. You know, so um, I'll give them that. And that's why, you know, it's important that we have our own independent media outlets so that we can disseminate this information uh, to the masses. So, um, yeah. And, and I would even throw in Africa. Um, last night, somebody made a post talking about, I, you know, I want to go to Africa because there's no police brutality in Africa. I was like, really? Is that what you think? Is that what you believe? And then people thinking that they're going to run to Africa to escape racism and white supremacy. Well, they should do a Google search and pull up a map of all the U.S. bases that are in Africa right now and droning people to death and whatnot. And, and, and so, you know. And, and not only that, it's like, you know, when people just say, you know, they mention a whole continent as if they're talking about a state or right. one country. Right. You know, uh, that, that's, that's one of those things that, you know, it's, it's very annoying, you know, to me, from my perspective, when I hear people just mention the entire continent rather than, you know, a specific country right. or, you know, a specific, you know, capital city or region or whatever. Um, and then beyond that, when you start breaking it down, you know, the history, you know, of colonization and the militarisms and military coups and, you know, genocide. And, you know, it's like for to hear somebody say, you know, that they would, you know, run as if those things don't exist in other countries. It just it's just smacks at the level of ignorance. Right. And, and as we, I think we discussed it on this program, it might have been another program, but the Paris attacks that happened and then, you know, uh, and I didn't know this, this was information new to me, but you got several Western um, uh, African countries that were colonized by France that are still paying France. I would call 14. it ransom money. Right. Four t- 14 countries that are still in a financial debt in a situation of neo-colonialism. Yeah, I mean, it's like you paying the occupier for occupying you. Uh So, you know, again, you know, I'm sure there are pockets and places in Africa just like, you know, there are pockets and places here in the United States where... You're not under, you know, the uh, uh, terrorism as other people are in other places. But again, this is a global war. Uh, the whole planet is a battlefield and people, you know, and I don't, I don't begrudge anybody from wanting to leave uh, the mainland United States. But I'm just saying, you know, you well, why are you going to run? Because eventually you're going to have to fight them wherever you go if we don't stop, you know, this beast from continuing to do what it's always done so um the supreme court again in the decision five to four um 
issued an injunction which has stopped the Native Hawaiian people from counting the ballots because uh, they already had the vote from what I understand, but they stopped the process of counting the ballots uh, due to this lawsuit by assimilated proxy racist tool of white supremacy. So, um, yeah, that's all I got to say on that. Um, do want to talk about some of the uh, upcoming events. Are there any I events in particular uh, that you uh, have been, you know, um, having your eye on, uh, Sister Amidia, uh that's coming up? Um, I would say one of the biggest um, coming up is December 18th, and that is the hearings on uh, Momia's uh, latest lawsuit regarding um, prison and prison health care in Pennsylvania. Um, I was not aware that he actually, um, it's being stated now that, you know, medically wise, um, people believe that in fact that he contracted Hep Z um, via a blood transfusion. Um, you know, I was not aware of any situation where you know, he, you know, actually, you know, required um, a transfusion. So, um, and recently hearing that, you know, I was quite, you know, surprised um, that that's how he potentially contracted the hep C. Um, so that is December 18th in Grant, uh, Pennsylvania, um, the beginning of the hearings regarding him. Uh, receiving adequate medical attention in the Pennsylvania system, which will in turn have, you know, an overall, you know, reflection on prison health care in the state of Pennsylvania and, you know, um, could set a precedent across the country. We hope we, you know, we hope we get the ruling um, that we're looking for, um, that Mumia's looking for. And because, you know, I wasn't aware of the level of people infected with hep C in prisons uh, across this country. And I've even heard people talk about it's reaching epidemic levels. And, and you know, people were even concerned about if we don't do something about this now, you know, this could turn into a pandemic. And then it's going to cost a whole lot of more, you know, money. And so, again, what we're talking about is the state of Pennsylvania denying uh, treatment, uh, treatment that I think has something like a 90 plus percent success rate in treating people with Hep C, and, and, and I'm not sure if it cures them of it or whatnot, but Hep C is a virus. It's a communicable disease, and so, I mean, anybody going to prison is at risk, and so for the prisons to deny this this, this health care, and of course, we're talking about Mamiya Abu-Jamal, we know why they would deny it to him, because they've been trying to kill him ever since, you know, let's not forget, he was sentenced to death, and, you know, it took a tremendous effort to get him off of death row, and now he's off death row, well, they're trying to kill him by medical neglect, like they, they've killed Many people in prison, political prisoners and non-political prisoners, prisoners of politics. So that is a very important case uh, that's coming up. It's being argued uh, in part by the Abolitionist Law Center. Um, attorney Brett Grote is one of the attorneys working on that uh, case for Mamiya. And, it, and, and we hope that, um, you know, it will have wide ranging um, um, effects across, you know, this nation. Uh, incarceration nation, as they call it, as we should call it. Um, so, yeah, that's something to keep an eye on. Uh, but a uh, lot uh, coming up on December the 8th, that's on a Tuesday. So that's on two, two, uh, within two days. A political, there will be a political prisoner letter writing dinner. Um, that is going to be at 1302 Myrtle Avenue, Brooklyn, New York. Um, we have posted this to our Facebook page, Political Prisoner Radio, if you want to uh, go ahead and check it out and get some of the information. I imagine you don't have to be in New York to participate, you know, because we're talking about just writing uh, political prisoners, right? You don't have to be in New York. You can just get the addresses and write them. Uh, but let me share this. It says, this week we will be writing to two folks who are serving time for fighting against the strongest and most obvious example of the state's power, the military. 
Chelsea, Chelsea Manning is a whistleblower who played an integral role in a massive WikiLeaks release of military documents and files in 2010. This release included video of journalists being murdered, documentation of abuses and torture, and files exposing some of the spying done by the United States. She was sentenced to 35 years in prison. Norman Laurie is a chaplain and an anti-war activist who is serving up to seven years for blocking the entrance to an army recruitment center while attempting to dissuade the potential soldiers from signing up to carry out the murder by state in 2012. This is on the heels of him being released after doing 18 months for blocking the door at the recruitment center, which came right after he did seven months' time for smashing the windows of recruiters' cars. The judge laid out one condition for parole that Norman promises not to disrupt the recruitment center again. Perhaps the judge will try to hold their breath until that happens. If for some insane reason you can't make it out but still want to support the prisoners, uh, you can write to both of them. And again, I have uh, posted this on Facebook, Political Prisoner Radio's page, and it has uh, their addresses on there. Um, let me see. Is there anything else? And that information comes to you via the NYC Anarchist Black Cross. NYC Anarchist Black Cross, um, who, which does a lot of good work in uh, advocating for political prisoners, keeping up with their cases and whatnot. So you can visit them online at nycabc.wordpress.com. Uh, was there any other updates that, that we wanted to share? Um, there is quite a few updates. Uh, one thing I wanted to mention, the um, immigration detainees across uh, nationwide that are on um, a hunger strike. And, uh, you know, most of uh, the detainees um, are in prisons uh, across the South, um, whether it's, you know, Texas, Arizona, um, you know, and it's not something that the system, you know, generally, you know, makes mention of, you know, usually when um, detainees in immigration detention facilities are engaged, you know, in such political actions, it doesn't, um, you know, it doesn't generally get uh, any media or press or acknowledgement at all. So I think it's, you know, important for us to, you know, recognize, um, you know, the nameless, faceless, you know, brothers and sisters that are um, engaged in these, these hunger strikes in these facilities. Yes, I have been hearing um, a lot about that. And these hunger strikes by prisoners, I mean, these not only have been going on in immigration centers as well as um, work stoppages saying, no, we're not going to work until you address our medical needs and, and you know, uh, our safety and whatnot. Um, but they've been going on for a number of years that I've known of within, you know, uh, regular prisons prison plantations and whatnot, work stoppages. Uh, I'm thinking about um, California, Georgia. Uh, there's been a number of them. So, um, yeah, that is something. And, again, you know, that is part of, I do recognize, the immigration detention is part of 21st century slavery and human trafficking uh, because they do make these people work. They are making money off of their, even if, even if it's just housing their bodies and whatnot. So, and, and a lot of times these people are fleeing uh, political situations, political violence, I mean not political violence, but violence brought about by politics like the U.S. drug war. Um, and, and they're fleeing their countries because of U.S. policy. And I think that they should be given political asylum, uh, considering what U.S. corporations and uh, U.S. government policy is, is creating the instability in their, own, in their home countries. So, I mean, these people aren't just coming here because, you know, they want to come here because America is so great, you know, for everybody and, and whatnot. No, they're, they're fleeing you know, very life-threatening situations. Right, exactly. 
Well, if there's anything else uh, before we get to our political prisoner radio mix, which we're going to close out with that, it's actually pretty long. It's like 22 minutes long. Again, thank you to Prison Radio. Uh, you can visit them at prisonradio.org. Support their work as well, uh, helping to bring the prisoners' voices from behind the walls to your ears. Um, and, you know, these are prisoners who um, are uh, providing you with political commentary and analyzing the social problems uh, that we face. So, but before we get to that, uh, again, as I stated at the beginning of the program, today is the birthday. Uh, political prisoner Stanley L. Cohen. Uh, we want to send birthday greetings to him. Um, let me just share a little bit of background information. I shared a fairly long uh, article about him, and his story kind of reminds me of of um, man. What's her name? She just recently got a medical release because of her cancer. The uh, people's attorney, Lynn Stewart. He kind of reminds me of Lynn Stewart because of the cases that he has taken on. And um, so let me just just read this. Uh, read just a bit of it. I mean, there's a lot here. So well, I'm not going to read it all, but uh, what you can do is you can find out more information um, about him. In his work in uh, providing representation to people uh, who are demonized by the United States government, victims of uh, U.S. Uh, foreign policy and whatnot. And so you can uh, reach out uh, to him and find out more information. Uh, this, uh, this information is published by Forward.com. Forward.com. Uh, the other political prisoner who has a birthday this week is... Um, and this information comes to you from DenverABC.wordpress.com. That's DenverABC.wordpress.com. Uh, Zolo Agana Anzina, I think is how you pronounce his name. What was that? Zolo Azania. Azania. Zolo Azania, uh, who is uh, being held captive in an Indiana State Prison. Uh, which is in, uh, of course, Indiana, Michigan City, Indiana. I have linked to his ABC, Denver ABC uh, profile on there. Here's a little bit of background about him. Zolo Anzina uh, is a former Black Panther convicted of a 1981 bank robbery that left a Gary Indiana, Indiana cop dead. He was arrested miles away from the incident as he was walking unarmed down the street. After a trial plagued with injustices, Zola was given a death penalty. After years of campaigning and several orders to stop his execution, the death penalty sentence was finally dropped. Um, Zolo still adamantly maintains his innocence and continues to fight for his freedom. At the time of his arrest for the shooting death of a policeman, uh, he was a well-known activist in his hometown of Gary, Indiana. He was an ex-con who had grown up in extreme poverty, and he was also the valedictorian of his CETA federal job training class and had received a scholarship to Purdue University just prior to his arrest. An artist and writer, he was involved in the campaign to make Martin Luther King's birthday a national holiday and had designed a button used by campaigners in uh, Gary. Uh, some details from his legal case during his trial, the prosecution intimidated witnesses, suppressed favorable evidence, uh, presented false eyewitnesses and expert testimony and denied him the right to speak of present motions in his own behalf. The two other men charged and convicted with him received sentences of 60 years, but his political history and beliefs were used to paint an unfair and inaccurate picture of him, and he received a death penalty for a crime that he was not involved in. Um, so his birthday is coming up on Saturday, and we want to send birthday greetings to him. Um, his birthday will be on December the 12th. Since before we uh, get ready to close it out with our political prisoner radio mix, did you have any final thoughts or information that you wanted to share? Um, I do. Actually, um, 
there's a court date tomorrow for um, Jared Chase. I know um, we have talked about uh, his case previously and mentioned um, this upcoming date. I just wanted to uh, put the information back out there to our listeners regarding um, Jared's case. Um, this case is in um, Chicago and of course you know on December 4th there was a lot of uh, reflection in social media regarding the uh, police and uh, counterintelligence program murder of Fred Hampton and uh, Mark Clark, um, you know, and, and just recently a lot of uh, action regarding the police uh, murder and cover-up of Laquan McDonald. So um, there's a long history here, um, but it's important to mention um, that uh, Jared Chase, who um, is a member of the NATO-3, that um, he's scheduled to go to trial tomorrow. And, um, you know, for folks can, you know, look up information about um, Jared and uh, the NATO-3. Yes, you can actually follow. Uh, they do have a social media account. There is a website, Free the NATO 3, the number 3, Free the NATO 3.wordpress.com. On Twitter, it is at Free NATO 3. At Free NATO 3. So, uh, as uh, Sister Mijo just shared, he goes to trial in Chicago on December the 7th, and they are asking that people in that area pack the courts and show their support. Um, so, um, it gives us, let's see, um, says okay. Yeah, you can go to uh, that website. Um, let me see, I think there's also a petition. Uh, well, no, this is uh, calling on Anita Alvarez to stop, step down in relation to the murder of Laquan and cover up of Laquan McDonald that uh, they tweeted out. So, uh, yeah, you can find that uh, information again. Keep up with them at freethenato3.wordpress.com. All right. If there's any, if there isn't anything else, we are going to uh, wrap it up and uh, play. Our close it out with our uh, political prisoner radio mix, um, uh, courtesy of prisoner prisoner radio dot org prisoner radio dot org helping to bring the voices of our political prisoners from behind the walls to your ears. Thank you for joining us. We will of course uh, be back next week for another episode of Political Prisoner Radio. Peace and blessings. You are tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. Speech to the National Convention of the Campaign to End the Death Penalty. Delivered November 13, 2015 via telephone from the California State Prison, Los Angeles County in Lancaster, California. Greetings from inside California's prison system. Thank you to Lily Hughes and Christine Thomas for the singular opportunity to address my fellow activists in the long struggle to end all forms of the death penalty, lethal injections, and lethal terms of imprisonment. In any situation like this, I am especially compelled to point out that I feel the great weight of the more than 50,000 men and women condemned to life without the possibility of parole sentences in prisons all across this country, serving what I've called the other death penalty. A number, by the way, that is greater than all the rest of the countries in the world combined. I do not presume to speak for them all, nor do I assert that what I advocate, or what I believe, or what I feel is universal amongst this diverse group of people. Nevertheless, I will try to share with you what it means to me to serve this other death penalty. It is also imperative to me that I acknowledge up front that I am not an innocent. When I was 19 years old, I killed a man named Thomas Allen Fellows in a drunken, drugged-up fist fight that started over some unspoken.
I did then was wrong, and from the start, I've owned up to my guilt. To this day, to this very moment, I feel tremendous shame and remorse for that act of inhumanity. But I don't believe I ceased to be a human on that day. I don't believe I became incapable of positive change, or that I should remain forever outside the pale of society, outside even the possibility of growth or healing. More to the point of this discussion, I don't believe that my actions somehow warranted and justified a suspension of the normal rules of justice. This really is the heart of the problem of all death sentences. The idea and the practice of suspending the normal rules of the idea and practice of justice. And that's why, in a just society, there cannot be death sentences of any variety, lethal injections, or lethal terms of imprisonment. I've been asked to talk about what it's like to be sentenced to the other death penalty. I am fully qualified for this task because I've been doing it now for more than 35 years, inside one of the most dysfunctional, dangerous, and punitive prison systems inside our prison nation. The first thing to understand about life without parole is its cruelest aspect, the denial of hope. In religious iconography, the traditional theological virtues, faith, hope, and charity, have often been represented as two young women with a child between them, the child being the embodiment of hope. Without hope, life is a shadow of a life. It's two-dimensional and flat, a mere reflection. Without hope, which is the wellspring of possibility and desire, life is rendered down to its mechanical function. It is breath without spirit. What this means on the ground inside prison is there are more than 50,000 men and women walking, but not living, in the worst prisons in the industrialized world, without the most basic reason for being alive, without hope. The second thing to understand about life without parole is its most insidious aspect, how it disappears us. When a man or a woman is sentenced to the other death penalty, that's basically the end of their story. Unlike the more obvious forms of the death penalty, it's not the beginning of a long, protracted court battle or the focus of any intense scrutiny. And, unlike a regular life sentence, it's not the first act in that man or woman's long process of appearing before parole boards seeking to be found suitable, as it's called here in California. In my 35 years of prison, I've never once been before a parole board, and I never will. Neither have I been the focus of anyone's attention decrying the injustice of my predicament. Factually, until but a few years ago, after grueling work supported by courageous volunteers not intimidated by the entrenched abolitionist groups, we were an afterthought at most. What this means on the ground inside a prison is those 50,000 men and women in those terrible prisons, abandoned and left to the prison industrial complex's design, without representation, without advocates, without hope. The third thing to understand about life without parole is one of its most frustrating aspects. The limitations we're forced to contend with on account of the sentence itself and regardless of our personal situation. In every prison system that houses life without parole prisoners, there are special restrictions placed on us. These run the gamut from limited job assignments to no access to rehabilitative programs to being barred from placement in higher functioning prisons. In California, life without parole prisoners are placed last on work assignment waiting lists, are excluded from many other assignments due to our status alone, and must be housed in those prisons with the least programming opportunities. Many other states place even more severe restrictions on life without parole prisoners, essentially forcing them to spend the rest of their lives in security housing units, more commonly known as the whole. What this means on the ground in prison is those 50,000 men and women in terrible prisons, abandoned to the prison system's abuses without any real representation or hope, are also denied access to the only things that can bring some sense of meaning to a life. Work, education, peace. We are, in fact, often told that resources should not be wasted on people sentenced to die in prison. The fourth thing to understand about life without parole is its most discouraging aspect how we become unwilling, unasked, volunteer sacrifices. Most, but not all, the campaign to end the death penalty, thankfully and laudably a part of the not all, most death penalty abolitionist groups continue to aggressively advocate in favor of life without parole as a so-called reasonable alternative to the death penalty of lethal injections. 
worse, many of these groups pointedly promote the harshness and suffering of a life spent incarcerated in the worst prisons without any hope of release. They trumpet the finality of the sentence, devoid of all those pesky appeals and do-gooder lawyers. In some exceptionally egregious recent cases, these champions of civil rights and progressive thinking have actually sought to pass initiatives that would make a horrible sentence even worse, cynically winking one eye at the left and the other at the right, while throwing gasoline on the pyre of prisoner abuse and dehumanization. What this means on the ground in prison is those hopeless, abandoned 50,000 men and women living under a constant attack from both sides of the political debate in those terrible prisons with nothing meaningful to do are the identified and acceptable targets for abuse by the system. To be one of these prisoners is to live in a state of hyper-awareness, of constant preparation for assault from all sides, the system, the guards, the politicians, even our purported allies. It's to be reminded every single day for the rest of your life that you are not a member of the human race and no one cares about your fate. It's to be forever defined by the worst moments of your life, no matter what you might accomplish later on. It's to be killed long before you die. I live on a facility with a high concentration of life without parole sentenced prisoners. Many of us have known each other since we were young men, filled with the irrational excesses of youth. Now, we're mostly a bunch of old guys suffering the inevitable consequences of decades of substandard medical care, constant stress, and the inherent decline that come from the passage of time itself. Worse, we all ache from decades of fighting to retain some semblance of dignity in the face of endless assaults. We are all tired, existentially tired. Recently, someone I've known since our days back on the yard at Old Folsom, when we were wayward boys, developed lung cancer. He'd served about 30 years at that point. Over the course of a year, I watched him fall apart, as is the nature of lung cancer. Toward the end, he came to me with a glint of hope in his eyes and said, they're going to let me out on a compassionate release so I can die with my family. I didn't have the heart to tell him that although he met the medical criteria for a compassionate release, he would be denied. No one sentenced to death, be it by a lethal injection, or lethal term of imprisonment is eligible for a compassionate release, is eligible for compassion. What he couldn't get his mind around was he'd been killed a long time ago. He died on the prison grounds. Life without the possibility of parole, like all other forms of the death penalty, must be ended. Trading one method of execution for another is not abolition. To call that abolition is an insult to the word, and it's a lie. To bargain with our lives and hold up our suffering as some kind of burnt offering is both immoral and duplicitous, and it should be beneath people engaged in advancing the standards of our society towards something better. Thank you to the campaign to end the death penalty for this opportunity, and thank you much more importantly for your commitment to ending all forms of the death penalty. This is Kenneth E. Hartman, Executive Director of the Other Death Penalty Project from inside California's prison system. None of your business. Recently, a state appeals court in Pennsylvania ruled that its state officials and judges didn't have to release internal emails to the media saying they weren't pertaining to government business. The emails in question came to light when Pennsylvania's embattled Attorney General, Catherine Kane, announced their existence, describing them as racist, sexist, and indeed pornographic. Pennsylvania's Commonwealth Court, in a majority decision, turned aside a media suit brought to release them in their entirety. In other words, it's none of your business. Imagine if you are a person of color, I hate that term, or a woman suing a state official in one of its courts. Wouldn't you want to know if your judge and attorney general shared racist, sexist, or pornographic materials with each other? What if you're a white guy charged with a pornographic offense? Wouldn't you want to know if your judge shared smut with the state prosecutor, or if the prosecutor regularly shared such stuff with the justice of the Supreme Court? Well, it's none of your business. Case closed.
it's none of your business because boys will be boys and you're not part of the good old boys club it's a right to know act in pennsylvania yes but this you ain't got the right to know if you don't like it tough the court has ruled it's none of your business from imprisoned nation this is mumia abu jamal tale of two men. Sometimes events occur which, although separate in locality, have features in common or, when compared, reveal a clarity that they would not possess apart. Cases in point A. A young man, reportedly for the high crime of possessing a three-inch knife, gets shot repeatedly until dead. His alleged offense causing fear in a cop. B. A middle-aged man, armed as if about to engage in war, drives to a Colorado Springs abortion clinic and engages in an hours-long rampage, shooting nine and killing three before quitting his tantrum and submitting to arrest. Upon arrest, he is neither beaten nor kicked nor stomped nor shot. I am, of course, referring to the cases of Laquan McDonald, 17, late of Chicago, Illinois, and of Robert L. Deere, 57, of Colorado Springs, site of a Planned Parenthood clinic. One, it must be said, black men receive hyper-attention when in the presence of cops, so much so that, as a rule, white guys fade into the background of normality, unseen, unchallenged even when they are carrying arsenals. Again, as in Deere's case, he drove to the clinic and then carried arms into the site of Planned Parenthood. One man was virtually invisible. Another man was hyper-visible. In such cases as these, both paths led to disaster. California. Black lives have never mattered in the United States of America and never will. A modern day slave perspective. Sometimes different people can independently arrive at the same conclusion. I didn't start and haven't been affiliated with the Black Lives Matter movement, but I respect your analysis of the problem and their desire to end it. Around the same time that Black Lives Matter was starting, I, like many other people, was thinking along the same lines about what the fundamental problem was behind seemingly rampant police murders of black people. And for once, I didn't feel alone in centering the problem of what black life means. If black life doesn't mean anything, the United States would be a genocidal slave state in which the killing and punishment of black people is meted out and widely considered acceptable regardless of guilt or innocence, gender, socioeconomic status, or other factors. And that's exactly what it is. Black Lives Matter is a grassroots coalition-based social movement started in the United States by Alicia Garza, Patrice Cullors, and Opal Pometti in the wake of several unpunished or likely punished incidents of police killing unarmed black people, including the killing of Oscar Grant and Kenneth Harding in Oakland, as well as Trayvon Martin, Eric Garner, Renisha McBride, and Michael Brown. While it consists of people with diverse viewpoints and tactics, the movement's central aim is to oppose the systematic normalization of black people's death, which makes violence against black people more likely and more acceptable. Black Lives Matter began as a social media movement, but has quickly become on-the-ground social movement with many different actors and organizations that aren't necessarily connected as one organization, but have the same general aim. Actions and policies of the United States result in disproportionate killing, injuring, and incarceration of black people. But the struggle for black life, no matter, is not just about opposing policing practices against black men, boys, and girls. It is also about how domestic abuse victim Marissa Alexander was not allowed to defend herself against her abusive husband under the same stand-your-ground defense in Florida law 
that George Zimmerman used to get exonerated in killing of Trayvon Martin. It is also about how black trans woman Cece McDonald was prosecuted and convicted for defending herself against a hostile and racist group of white youth in Minneapolis. It is also about how broader political practices like the mass disenfranchisement of Florida and Ohio black voters, the shutting down of water services to Detroit residents, and the anemic federal response to Hurricane Katrina in 2005 show a remarkable disregard for black lives. Because the nature of racism is not just prejudice, but also the power to enforce prejudice, these problems cannot be addressed individually by punishing or educating those who commit violence against black people without justification. It is too big a problem. The conservative Wall Street Journal reported that in 2011, NYPD had more stops of young black men in Manhattan than there are young black men in Manhattan. And at least one former NYPD police officer has stepped forward to say that he was specifically ordered to stop young black men at every opportunity. But he is just one officer and NYPD just one department. Police officers everywhere have broad latitude to stop anyone they suspect may be involved in a crime and use that latitude to systematically target black and Latino men and boys. The problem is deeper than any one department, and it's stop and switch policy. For one thing, it's everywhere, not just in New York. One report describes anti-black racism as baked into police practices. The root of the problem, says Black Lives Matter movement co-founder Alicia Garza, is anti-black racism. In other words, there is a unique, deeply ingrained and pervasive kind of racism that American society at large feels towards black people that goes a long way toward explaining these disparities as well as many others. What does blackness mean to America? There are not so subtle hints everywhere. Number one, black people make up approximately 12% of the U.S. population but constitute more than 40% of the United States prison population. Number two, White Americans use illegal drugs at rates that are comparable to or well in excess of the rate at which black Americans use illegal drugs, but black Americans are incarcerated for drug offenses 10 times more. Number three, in 2012, a black American was killed by the police and security forces at least once every 28 hours. According to another report, black teens are 21 times more likely to be shot dead by police than their counterparts. The problem is not just that a de facto police state is ready to descend on black people at any time, but also more broadly, that the entire population of African Americans is perceived by the broader society as a potential threat and as unworthy of being listened to when we protest through legal institutions or other means. This problem must be viewed as systemic, one, not just an individual or institutional one, and it must be addressed on multiple levels, including not only institutionally or interpersonally, but especially in our conscious thoughts, the deeply ingrained thought process that are reflected by our actions before we even have the opportunity to think. Before we can change our thinking to make Black Lives Matter, we must truly understand that the problem of Black Lives Not Mattering is a problem of meaning that isn't just individual and institutional, but it's structural, it's rooted, and what America is. America needs black lives to not matter due to centuries of negative images and stereotypes about Africans and racial blackness. And the collective psyches of the United States throughout the Americas and across the world, blackness means, as the late psychiatrist Dr. Franz Fanon said, the lower emotions, the baser inclinations, the dark side of the soul. A field of study within the cognitive psychology known as implicit cognition and implicit bias finds quantifiable evidence of what black people have been knowing for more than 1,000 years. Had anyone with the power bothered to listen, that deeply rooted negative attitudes toward people of African descent are held widely across the American population, even among those who claim to be non-racist, even when other possible causes for these attitudes, like socioeconomic class or education level, are taken into consideration. And these attitudes tend to increase people's willingness to use violence interpersonal, institutional, or state, and punishment against black people. One recent quantitative study from Stanford titled Not Yet Human shows that people of African descent are commonly associated with AIDS at an unconscious level of mental processing. According to the study, this black AIDS association alters visual perception and attention, and it increases endorsement of violence against black suspects. In an archival study,
study of actual criminal cases, the authors show that news articles written about blacks who are convicted of capital crime are more likely to contain eight relevant language than news articles written about white convicts. Moreover, those who are implicitly portrayed as more ape-like in these articles are more likely to be executed by the state than those who are not. This finding agrees with the earlier work of Stanford literature professor Sylvia Winter, who found that police in Los Angeles in the 1980s and early 90s commonly used the incident code NHI, meaning no humans involved, for incidents involving African Americans. While many people acknowledge this police code has been racist, a Stanford quantitative study shows that even people who don't think themselves racist have the same thoughts. And there are a slew of other studies that support my contention. In conclusion, the Black Lives Matter movement is about trying to open society's eyes to the reality that black people are under severe attack, and they have been for many years. We ask that people in America open their eyes and their hearts to understand what's really going on. We thank you. Troy Thomas, Lancaster, California. These commentaries are recorded by Noel Hanrahan of Prison Radio.